Welcome back to the Readiness Report live with myself, Aaron Sigerman, and my co-host and also the president of Redken One, Eric Hart, Silky Tuba. Silky Tuba. Look at how bright this shirt yeah, is. You really it's are. It's like, you look good. Almost neon. Yeah, we look good tonight. I think the camera's a little closer. We're in a different setting. We got more we got lights and stuff. Well, I, I told think, Johnny to make everything look bigger on camera. So. Oh, good. <laughs> smart man, smart man. <laughs> so uh, this is show number seven, right? Six, no, six, six, number six. six. Okay, yep. so we're yeah, Cedric was number five. So we're six shows in to the brand new Readiness Report Live, and with our new format, we've heard so many good things. And last show was our most widely watched show and listened to show so far. Yeah, I, you know, Cedric obviously he's he's a horse of a different color. Let's yes. put it that way. He's a very new guy, unique guy. Yeah, because he's got different points of view, and he'll get into something and can talk, which we don't saw that, but. I don't know. He had some interesting points of views on like with COVID and, uh, you know, he articulates himself really well too. So I think, I don't know if I was on the other side of the camera to watch it. I mean, it would have been, I would have been interested to watch. No doubt about it. Me too. I mean, for, for me personally, hearing his side of the story was unique because we didn't know what to expect. You know, when you talk to people about something as sensitive as COVID-19 and everything else going on in the world these days, you kind of don't know what you're going to get. And so uh, for, for us, I was like, well, we're going to give it to Cedric, see what he has to say, and, and hopefully he doesn't say anything too crazy. And, uh, and in fact, he actually had a lot of amazing things to say, very interesting things to say. One of the things that I took away from it was he, he's on the front lines of this. You know, he's uh, right now working. He was attached to uh, COVID-19 testing, yeah. right? So he said, in his opinion, based on all the things he's seen and the people he's met, is that he feels like it's inevitable, right. so that, that there's no way for us to get out of it uh, without this kind of passing through the community. And... Uh, and I thought that was interesting, especially considering he's on the front lines and, and his whole background and stuff. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, the thing that stuck with me is he's like, well, imagine the first people who ever got the flu. Yeah. He's like, what did they think? They probably thought the world was ending and, you know, where, hey, it's the flu and we're all, we're all going to get it at some point where it's just like the new norm. And he's like, you know, imagine when we're 70 looking back drinking going, oh, remember when we had to wear those stupid masks? Yeah, so, <laughs> that's what he said, right? You know, I think the interesting thing is I, I have a friend of mine, and we haven't talked about this yet, uh, that you know that had uh, COVID nineteen, and he was with his girlfriend and the kids and everything else during the process, even though he didn't know he had it. Right, kissing her, hugging, kissing the kids, and everything. And uh, he was amazed and surprised that his kids and his wife didn't get nobody. Got didn't, it. Nobody got it. Nobody was infected by, even though there were, you know, while he was having it, they were hugging, kissing, etc. He didn't feel good, but you know, he didn't know. So it's an interesting thing where like nobody's even looked at that. Like, what does it take to get it? There may be people that have immune systems just that aren't compromised in any way. Because he said they were literally like, you know, his wife and him were kissing. Yeah, it was like, like normal you know, then, right? Exchanging saliva, right? And uh, and he's hugging his kids and nobody had it. So it's a very interesting thing because nobody really knows. There's no really information saying like, hey, this is going to do this or this is going to do that. It's kind of like, you know, who the hell knows? Yeah, it's very conflicting to the information. And for me, if you give it to me tomorrow and in a week I'm over it, I got immunity, I'll take it. Someone come give it to me. <laughs> so uh, readiness report, guys. The cool thing about the readiness report is that we are live and questions and answers will be at towards the end of the show. We're our first guest, uh, Bernie Carrick. If you have any questions for Bernie, please ask him. Johnny over there is going to be handling the questions with Ryan. So if we have any great questions, you guys want to hear anything specifically uh, from our guests or from us. If it's from us, you might we, we probably will wait to the end. But if it's yeah. a guest that we have, we would love to uh, hear from you guys along the way. So there's some big things that have been happening here at Redcon 1. We have a very exciting event this weekend. Uh, arguably the most exciting event, in my opinion, we've probably ever had. You know, yeah, the number of people it's bringing in, just the people from different communities around the country. Yeah, I think it's 
you know, it brings the gym together, the office, you know, yeah. the Murph. So the Murph. So uh, let's go through each one of these things. We'll start with the Murph, which is the thing that uh, that is really, really huge. So if you guys don't know already, Lieutenant Michael Murphy uh, was a Medal of Honor Award uh, recipient. Uh, unfortunately, he got it when he passed away already. So what uh, what happened with Michael Murphy, giving you a very short version, because you're going to hear a lot more about this this weekend, is that he basically gave his life for his brothers. Everybody, or a lot of people anyway, most people have seen the movie with Mark Wahlberg, where it's called Lone Survivor. And so Mark Wahlberg uh, plays Marcus Luttrell, who's a, a very well-known SEAL now, and he was the only one to survive um, what happened. And without going into all the movie, you know, one of the other big things uh, that happened was Lieutenant Michael Murphy and the rest of the three guys uh, four total that were there with him, with uh, with Marcus Luttrell, they all passed away. But Michael Murphy decided to that his guys were in trouble and to go up to the top of this ridge mountain, really, and uh, make a call with his cell phone because his phone wasn't able to get in touch with uh, the back at the base to get support. The only way he could do it was to basically choose to sacrifice his life for his guys and go get cell reception, even though he knew that it was going to be. Uh, dangerous to the level that he wasn't going to make it back, and he did it, and uh, and eventually that saved Marcus Luttrell because otherwise they wouldn't know that they were in trouble. Yeah, that's the ultimate sacrifice. You know, when you look at like they call them team guys, right? Because yeah. that's what they are. Team, they're your family, a team, and that would be that's what you do. Yeah, that's what, and and it's uh, it's something where those guys of uh, his team that is the highest honor. You know, that is the biggest deal is to give your life for your brothers. And so he did that. And, uh, and so they honor him because of that. A lot of other guys passed away during this time is operation red wings, which is the 15th anniversary. Uh, and this is the official Murph that will be at the Redcon one gym for the, uh, for this event. So 15 years of all the other guys that passed away, uh, total of eight other, uh, seal guys, seal team, six guys passed away at the operation red wings along with eight night stalkers from the army. Tyler Merritt will be at the, uh, of Nyland will actually be at the event this weekend, along with many, many, many other people, including Bernie Carrick. Uh, and he was uh, a night stalker during that same period of time when, uh, when eight of them passed away in this whole thing. So it's an awesome event. We're doing Michael Murphy's actual workout, his favorite workout, which is a mile run, hundred pull-ups, 200 push-ups, and 300 air squats followed by one more mile. And it's all for time wearing a 20 pound vest. So some shit I definitely would not want to do myself. Uh, I would die. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm gonna be get to be uh, the guy on the microphone, which is gonna make it easier for me than anybody else. There. No, 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 no. It would on, be uh, it would be very uh, it would be very bad and embarrassing for me. Are you, you gonna do it? No, you'd find me in the bushes somewhere <laughs> asleep. Like, yeah, it would be bad. It would yeah, no, be bad. I'd, I'd need that helicopter pilot to come pick me up and take me out. Yeah, so we may have uh, Paul, who's gonna. We're, we're, we're working, yeah, we're working on uh, figuring out, but he wants to do it uh, to land a little bird into the middle of the parking lot um, and, uh, you know, fly it into the parking lot and land it, hang out for a little bit and fly it off, which would be really neat. So we're working on the details of that right now. So, Dario, we're buying a helicopter, just so you know. You're good with that? Okay. So we have a little bit of a live audience <laughs> in here tonight. So uh, we've been talking about this a little bit. Eduardo's back here watching. He may make an appearance as uh, talk about talk about Sosa. Um, yeah, um, and for sure, you'll, you'll hear in a second. Uh, but, um, yeah, maybe we'll do it, we'll do that in just a minute. So, 
you got a little bit of a live audience and we're wondering, you know, would people like to be here to watch it live? You know, we have a big room up here. This is the second floor of 10,000 square feet bigger too. and it's only going to get bigger. We're, we're building out the second floor to make it for a big studio. Wow. We feel like a little yeah, look at that shit. So um, Johnny's getting tricky. Yeah, it's getting tricky here. So we're going to make this into 10,000 square foot studio. So when this is all done over here, it should be something really spectacular. And uh, we're yeah. running in infinity walls and tracks for, for cameras. It's going to be pretty wild. So, once it's said and done, uh, maybe this is a place to bring people in and let them watch the show. But um, so let's talk about what's going on. The the basic training series launched yesterday. We you know we don't talk too much on the show about Redcon One, the yeah, products and stuff. But but I will mention a few big things because the Redcon One uh, basic training launch the line has been coming for forever and ever and too uh, for too long. And so basic training is twelve products which is our commodity stuff. So if you want just plain creatine monohydrate or glutamine or or just plain BCA powder, which is pretty neat without flavor or anything, or citrulline or et cetera. So we have 12 products that are now out on the site that were released on Wednesday and has already have already been a big hit. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, like for us, for our retail customers, I mean, we've been... Yeah, that's... The thing, I mean, as soon right? as we announced it, I mean, it was uh, literally how fast can we get it? How fast can we get it on the shelves? Yeah. International, it's been big. So it's nice because... You know, you and I design products really for us, you know, yeah. like it's stuff like, hey, what do we take? And we always would say, hey, what if we added this? Well, then it's like, you know, the whole you're still in this business to make money and like, you know, it just ends up costing too much where, you know, maybe the retailer can't afford it. The end consumer can't afford it. So now it really gives someone it's like Legos, someone a way to kind of completely customize their product, take total war, add more beta alanine, add more citrulline, or if you want to kind of take tango and make it more of a complete post-workout with glutamine, you know, however you want to do it. So that's the great thing about it is you can supercharge any of your products any way you want. It's really now makes the whole line customizable. Yeah. And people, people look every store all over the country and really all over the world has basic, these basic ingredients, creatine, monohydrate, beta alanine, and citrulline. So now we're able to be, uh, take shelf space from a lot of other brands all over the world, all over every shelf. So it's definitely a valuable thing that we're excited about. And a lot of people are very excited about it. Uh, and they're going to be uh, be using this instead of all these other companies that they would have used otherwise. And what's funny to see around the office is the amount of people drinking the liquid carnitine. I see people taking <laughs> yeah. it and dumping it in the cups like it's... It tastes good. Yeah, so like it's a shot of liquor. They, and, may, be, they may be doing it too much. Where oh, people a bunch are, of skinny-ass people in the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to get skinnier. They're going to get skinnier now. Uh, sweat marks all over the place. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So the other big announcement, which is arguably even bigger, is that... Uh, so we're wearing, you guys may notice, we're looking very uh, Miami Vice, Vice City right now with our new shirts we have a huge release right now um that's happening literally at this very moment we're releasing it early here thursday night uh at 8 p.m which we would normally wait till midnight tonight so the miami vice release is happening now and um that means not just the miami vice new apparel it's literally a new apparel launch but yes. it's also the release of four new products right so is it four you got tango double tap powder yep grunt and big noise and big noise plus yeah that's that's four plus total war plus total war which we already had so it's five products total in the miami vice flavor which people have loved and lost their mind over it yeah and do we want to tell the sixth go ahead so total war rtd that'll be the next flavor that you see roll out in rtd is actually miami expansion for for our exactly so i'll probably uh, get sued by rockstar games over vice city so whatever hopefully not <laughs> hopefully not eric hopefully not don't give any ideas uh so uh so guys uh that is a big deal in and of itself but the even bigger deal 
is a lot of people are like, well, I can't get to the Murph. I can't get to the gym. You know, I live in wherever, right? I can't make it. How do I get the inaugural 15th anniversary um, shirt? Because we're making a, a, a really cool Operation Red Wing shirt to commemorate the 15 years. And also it helps you participate in giving money back to the Murph Challenge. We want to donate as much money as possible to these guys, to Dan Murphy and their foundation. So if you want to give back and you want the awesome shirt, this is where it gets crazy here. You spend a hundred bucks and you get the shirt for free, but we are also doing for this weekend, a BOGO. It's crazy. I mean, this is a crazy deal. We've never done When we do do a BOGO and it's very rare, buy one, get one free. We've never given away anything before. No, because there's just the BOGOs. It's such a good deal. Up, Why yeah. would you even give anything away? But because everybody wants to be part of the, the Murph, everybody wants to be here at the gym, but they can't be. This is the first time in history I've done anything to give anything away with the BOGO, and it is available on the site right now. So you spend 100 bucks in BOGO, which is like a crazy deal to begin with. You're getting the shirt for free, and you're also helping a great cause. Yeah, and the thing, too, is that they, you know, that's an organization where it's controlled really by two people. They use the money. Um, one of the things they're doing is the – like they announced last week was the museum. Yes. You know, where they're actually going to have a museum for, it's not only just Michael Murphy, but it's another it's Navy, SEAL museum. Navy SEAL museum. Yeah, where yeah. they're going to hold them. Uh, I think next year's Murph there, correct? Yeah. If it opens in That's time. Plan, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're actually using the money. So it's not just, hey, you know, they created this cherry in his honor and you don't know where it goes. It's actually is being used all the time. So, yes, 100%. It's going to be, it's going to be really cool. And we're excited to be there for the, uh, for the opening of the, uh, the museum. So uh, one more thing before we get to our guest tonight, Bernie Carrick, and uh, just to remind everybody, we have two guests tonight, Bernie Carrick, which is uh, a friend of mine was a police commissioner of New York City Police Department during 9-11. He's also a very influential person in the world of uh, opinion. He's a, a thought leader for sure. And uh, and we're going to go into that in a second. But we also have uh, our new dog, which is pretty amazing. John Devine is a Navy SEAL and a dog trainer. And my friend Dom Rosso suggested we talk to, Don, to uh, John and said, like, hey, you have three little boys. They need to have a dog. And, uh, and now you can have a dog. Plus, you can have... Uh, protection. You know, when you're traveling, you travel all the time, you can get protection and uh, this dog will die to save your family. And I said, all right, well, you know, that sold me. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Well, so you actually got three guests. You got Bernie. Yeah. You have John and then you have Nola. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a, there's a lot to look forward to tonight. So uh, one last thing before we get to Bernie Carrick, uh, War Games, everybody's been asking about War Games, our new product, uh, Red Count 1 for gaming, which is something I don't think I'd ever in a million years thought we'd ever do but uh uh, war games will be out in the next eight weeks or so right probably less actually because uh the art team actually picked the label substrate that they wanted Mm -hmm. we got some samples in it's gonna be in the redcon one branding but a little bit different look to kind of go with the video game theme this Um, is this picture we're seeing on fitness performance was when they put together it's not exactly accurate it's a little warped yeah it's not exactly but it was just a mock-up we put out there um, if someone saw a panel, it's not correct. I mean, 14.7 gram serving, that's not what it is. Obviously, everyone, that's total war, but um, it's a loaded formula. I mean, because the thing is, you see gaming products, but a lot of them are just eh, mildly dosed focus formulas, really, is what they are. You're probably better off taking a mental trigger, um, you know, where we really addressed everything that you would need for gaming. Like most people play in low light, so you get eye strain, eye fatigue. Um, you know, you need to improve hand-eye coordination. You need something that doesn't have a lot of liquid because you don't even want to get up and go to the bathroom. Um, obviously, focus a little bit of energy, but not too much because you don't want to be stemmed out. I got to play Fortnite all the time. Uh, just play with Jackson. So <laughs> it's uh, it's fun, man. Um, but again, 
like doing all the beta for this while doing it. I mean, it, it was it was fun because there were some versions that were a little too much mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, I, I can't focus actually. Where then we kind of got through the testing of it, got to a sweet spot and then tested it to a much broader audience. And it was amazing the number of people in this building who are gamers. Oh, it's unbelievable. Gaming is such a big thing. It's like one of those things that, that I would never in a million years have known. Uh, that I was think such there's a actually more money in it than some pro sports right now. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So without further ado, we need to go to our first cast, uh, Bernie, what, do we go to commercial first? Okay, we'll go to commercial break and we'll come right back to Bernie Carrick. Be right back, guys. This town is like one great big gym just waiting to get bumped. Two of us in front of the microwave nonsense. And I'm gonna flood it with premium product. Call Taylor Cito. <laughs> Tell him we're doing a bubble. And change that shirt. You look like a purple di Barney dinosaur or something. Oh, that pumping chair already. What's up, boss? What's going on? Where's the big one? He's getting ready. Ready for what? Second no lunch? Idea. Third lunch? You got all my food. I'm ready. Why are you dressed like that? What are you wearing? You told me you're just intimidating. They're like all blue and fluffy. Yeah, what's more intimidating than a monster that's blue with Easter cookies? I like the way you think. You're that? Be like this guy. Look at him. Just like a monster. He's got ice on his head. He can see everything. See all around me. He he makes me feel protected. You two don't. Especially you. You're like pee-pee long stockings on steroids. <laughs> You get it. I don't want to talk to nobody. Hello? It's for you. What's it? Tuba. Tuba? Silky Tuba? Hey, what you want, man? You don't train as hard as me. <laughs> Cockroach, I train way harder than you. You never train like me. You want to go to war? I'll show you total war. I just want to throw a water. <laughs> I'm beat. What? You're supposed to drink it. It's delicious. It hits harder. It's phenomenal. You couldn't tell me that this whole time. Thing one and thing two are supposed to tell you that. Pee Pee doesn't talk and the other one's French. I don't understand that shit. Well, that's why I'm here. So now you know. I got you. You're going to tell me that this whole time. I got a bit of enemy up to here, man. I can't see it on my right eye. I got two extra eyes for you. Fucking guy.
My name is Ben Galloway. And I'm Matt Saraceno. We are the Tier Operator Management Team, and we invite you to join the Redcon One family. I joined the Tier Operator Program because I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. Being a Tier Operator is phenomenal. You want to keep tearing up. You want to work for, yes, the best company in the fitness industry. Redcon One helped me reach my goal, which at the time I didn't even know was a goal. The products work. Like that's, I mean, it's what it is. And I want to help other people reach their fitness goals using these products. I love that it's like a big family. I really enjoy that we can get together at events like this. And it's like, even though we're thousands of miles apart, it's just like, we all know each other, like we're neighbors. We're not just out here trying to make sales. We're out here trying to change lives. Apply to be a tier operator today. our guest, my friend, uh, New York City, 9-11, during 9-11, police commissioner, the author of several great books, my favorite, Jailer to Jail, which I read, talking about his experience in the criminal justice system, uh, and current New York resident, let me bring in Bernie Carrick. What's up, Bernie? How are you? Hey, guys. How are you? We're doing really good. We're doing good. How are you? How is New York right now? Uh, New York's in mass chaos. Uh, you have a governor, a mayor, a uh, they don't really give a damn about what's going on. Uh, you ride around, you know, hot spots like Soho or Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue. Uh, it looks sort of like a, a war zone uh, in the aftermath of the Beirut bombings in 1970. So uh, it's not doing too well. Not too happy. Yeah, you're actually coming down here. We're very happy to have you coming down here very soon for the uh, MRF. Uh, you and your son are both coming down here. Uh, yeah, we're looking, looking for it. Hey, listen, Aaron, when I get there, I want one of those shirts. But let me, let me ask something. That one you have on, like, does it come with a battery pack? Like, like how, how's it so bright? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 the lighting in here, but Bernie, we get you a battery pack, whatever whatever you need. Or send home <laughs> some studio lighting. Yeah, send home <laughs> some studio light. Yeah. Uh, Bernie, so in New York, have you got a chance? You, you've been around? I mean, this seems like a scary time to even drive around right now, right? Yeah, I've, I've been out, uh, been around, uh, went looking around in the aftermath of the riots. And, and I have to tell you, I was stunned, um, you know. I, uh, I remember New York City in the 80s. I was a cop uh, from 86 on. And, um, you know, I never thought it would be worse than it was in like 1988 or 89, 90, 92. You know, we were the murder capital of the world, if you will. And, um, and New York City was a, a horrible place to visit, to live, to work, to go to school. Um, and then everything changed when Giuliani came in in 1994, and I never thought that it would reverse in any way. And today, it actually looks worse. 
um, in many cases than it did when I joined the police department in 86. You know, it's funny, uh, Bernie, when I was, I distinctly remember this, when I was a, a little kid, I went to New York City uh, with my family and uh, Times Square was a place that I remember my mom and dad saying, like, we can't go there. It's a bad place. You don't want to be around there. You know, it's dangerous. And uh, they probably didn't want me to see all the craziness that was there. But, you know, as an adult, you go there and it's, a, it's a, I mean, that's the tourist attraction of, of the world, potentially, of America for sure, right? Right. Well, listen, you know, the, uh, if you've been to Times Square, and I'm sure a lot of your, uh, your viewers have, um, my second command in the NYPD was Midtown South. So when you walk into that precinct on 35th Street, there's a big sign that hangs over the top of the desk. It says, you've just entered the busiest police station in the world. And um, in my first post, my first job in Midtown South, was a foot post on 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. One block, one single block, and there were eight cops, a sergeant, and a lieutenant on one block. <laughs> and for eight hours a day, you ran from one end of that block to the other. Man with a gun, robbery in progress, shots fired, somebody, somebody threw somebody under a train, somebody jumped off the building, somebody got stabbed in the theater. For eight hours a day, if, if you wanted to be a cop and you wanted you, you were good at your job, there was no better job in the world than that because all you did for eight hours, your entire tour, unless you made an arrest and wound up back at the precinct, um, your entire tour, you ran around like a lunatic. That's crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing how much it changed. So what did Giuliani do that changed things so much uh, to, to change it from you know, basically chaos and anarchy to what we saw in other than the last, remove the last few months, but other than that. Well, in 1994, when Giuliani came in, I think we were, we were running about 2,200 murders per year. Wow. Now, 2,200 murders is more than Chicago, Baltimore, Milwaukee, and pick one of these other, you know, crazy cities right now. More than all of those combined, we had in New York City in 1994 when he came into office. And he came in uh, with the premise that nobody wants to live, work, visit, go to school in a place where they're not safe. You know, people in the communities of color were saying, look, we need jobs. We need better schools. You know, they, they complained about the socioeconomic situation in Harlem, in, in Bed-Stuy, in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Uh, the bottom line is, that was never going to change. You're never going to have good jobs there. You're never going to have schools there. You're never going to have anything to benefit the community if it's a place where mothers have to put their babies in bathtubs to put them to sleep because they're afraid of random gunfire. It's never going to place that. It's never going to be a place where people want to come to visit or work or live unless you reduce the crime and the murder rate. And so Giuliani's whole his whole function in life at the time was, we're going to reduce crime. I'm going to spend every dime I can on enhancing the police department, the narcotics enforcement, everything we can do to possibly reduce the crime and violence. That's what I want to do. And he came in, and, he, and when he said that, he was criticized by the New York Times. He was criticized by the the elite, uh, you know, basically saying he's lost his mind. New York City's too big. 
It's too, uh, you know, it can never be managed. But ironically, for every percentage point that we reduced murder and we reduced violent crime, we could show you increases in economic development, real estate value, tourism. And over that eight-year period that he was in office, um, you know, he was not a liked man in many cases. Um, many communities, they thought he was too aggressive. He was too assertive. Um, but at the end of the day, we reduced violent crime by 63%. We reduced murder by 70%. And in the communities of color, we reduced murder by almost 80%, saving thousands, literally thousands of black lives uh, over the eight-year term, and then going on into Bloomberg's administration. So, um, and that was responsible, uh, that was the beginning, if you will, of the Renaissance of New York. And, and like I said, for every percentage point we dropped murder and violent crime, we saw increases in, it, it basically, it, it boomed uh, the entire city um, until uh, 8.46 on the morning of September 11th. Um, I was in the position of police commissioner. I ran the police department at that point. I had 55,000 men and women that worked for me. Uh, 41,000 of those were uniformed officers. And that changed uh, not only the city, um, it really changed the world. Uh, you know, and it's it's funny, as I was listening to you guys talk about the Murph Challenge this coming, uh, this coming Saturday in, in Operation Red Wing, and, and the men and women that will be there, uh, you know, supporting this. Um, there's nothing, uh, to me personally, um, there's no group of people um, that I think should be supported and thanked um, more than the people that were on those operations, more than the people that was, you know, on the operation with Mike Murphy, uh, more than the people went on the mission with, you know, to, to take out Bin Laden. Um, I lived through September 11th. I lost 23 people that worked for me. I watched, uh, you know, 400 funerals of city's first responders um, over a three and a half month period. Uh, I'll never forget that day and the people that came to our aid, really, that, that defended us, that defended the first battleground, really, in the war on terror were the men and women in our military. So I have an enormous amount of respect and admiration for them. And I do everything in my power, as you know, uh, to get out there and support them. Yeah, you definitely do, uh, Bernie. So, you know, when you uh, look back to those times and 9-11 and, 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 you know, I always think 9-11, right, it's, it was a terrible event, obviously, and it was a travesty. But in a way, it brought the country together in a really unique fashion where it's like for the first time that I can remember, everybody had flags outside of their house. Everybody was 100% behind America. And now we have something that's also, you know, uh, a travesty and a terrible tragedy for America. But it seems like nobody is together. Nobody is, uh, you know, it is not bringing us together. It's more divisive and pulling us apart. How do you, in your opinion, how is that happening this time? What's the difference? So I'll tell you, uh, this is a true story, what I'm going to tell you. And it, and it shows the unity. There's a little humor in it. But this is, uh, you know, on the 14th of September. It was that Friday after the attack, uh, President Bush came to ground zero and the mayor and I and the governor took him around and we showed him, you know, the attack on the building. Um, we showed him the devastation. Um, it took him over to 
a number of the areas that we could get to so he could talk with the first responders down there. If you remember, he was up on the on the mound of rubble with the bullhorn with the uh, retired fireman. Um, so when he was done there, he wanted to go to the Javits Center. And uh, at the Javits Center, we had the families of those that were missing. Uh, we, you know, we were, we tried to be optimistic, uh, to hope that somebody had lived through this, uh, which they eventually, we found that they did not. But at the time, we took the families, we put them up at the Javits Center, and, um, and we told the president, we're going to take them up to the Javits Center. And he was in a, he was in an SUV. And he says, all right, everybody get in. Well, there was, there was five of us and him. There was six of us. There's only four seats in the back of the suburban, the presidential suburban. And he looked at us and I said, Mr. President, you know, there's only four seats. He said, everybody in. So we pretty much crawled in the back of the suburban, legs over each other, arms around the president. I know the Secret Service was probably having a heart attack. So we're basically crammed in the back of the suburban. We're going up West Street. And the president's looking out the window. And he keeps telling Giuliani, he says, look at this, how great it is. And you see these flags, God bless America. Go get him, Mr. President. God bless George Bush. Like all this stuff going up the West Side Highway. And Rudy Giuliani looked at, uh, looked at the president and he said, Mr. President, I hate to be the one to tell you this. He said, we're on the West Side of Manhattan. Not one of those people voted for you, not one. And, uh, and the governor laughed. You know, the governor was a Republican. Rudy looked at him. He said, Governor, he said, I don't know what you're laughing at. They didn't vote for you neither. But on that day, on that day, in the days and the weeks after, we were one United States of America. We were one people. Um, and I, and I, I, I'm sad to say, um, really sad to say, that I think that's going to be the only time in my lifetime that I've ever seen that. Um, I, I, I don't remember seeing anything like that before that, maybe when, uh, when President Kennedy was killed, um, I was, you know, I was only eight years old. I don't remember it that well, but I do remember the unity. Um, but I, I think the polarization, uh, of politics today has created an environment that is so, uh, so devastating, um, that it's, uh, I, I don't know if we can, we can go back to those times. And, you know, we're in a time right now where the city, uh, you know, I mean, I've lost friends uh, because I support President Trump. Um, I, people that I've known for my whole life won't talk to me, um, which is kind of bizarre. It's like really, uh, really strange. Um, so I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Um, and it, it really concerns me. And, it, and, you know, in the time that, you know, up until a year ago, if people asked me, um, you know, what's your greatest fear for the U.S., I would have said terrorism, international terrorism, because the same people that attacked us on September 11th, they had attacked us several times prior. They have attacked us in many different ways since September 11th. Not as big, not as devastating, but that threat is always there. And they're always trying to create the demise of the U.S. Um, and I get that. I understand it. I've studied it. I've lived it. I've, I've spent 10 years of my life in the Middle East. Um, but if people ask me today, what's the greatest threat? To me, it's not terrorism anymore. 
is the threat of socialism and communism uh, being pushed into this country by groups like Antifa. It's the radical groups that are running around destroying our cities like Black Lives Matter. Um, these are things that are extremely concerning to me. And, uh, you know, and, and I think they're tearing apart the country. I think people forget uh, what this country is about. They forget what the Constitution is about. Um, they forget about law and order. Um, and you have politicians out there that I honestly believe just don't give a damn. And, uh, and it worries me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. It's, it's, it's such a uniquely unusual in a bad way point in, uh, in American history where, you know, it's almost like, it feels like to me that there's a better chance of civil war than there is of everybody coming together and being one, which is something that I don't think I've in my lifetime anyway, that I don't, I know for sure that's never happened. Well, you, you know what I'm afraid of, Aaron? And, and I think, I, I think the lack of education of, of real history, not propaganda history, but real history. Um, you know, I, I think people need to go back in history and look at what happened in Russia. Look at what happened in Cuba. Look how communism was pushed into, you know, the Soviet Union, um, where it started, how it started. Um, and it was exactly, exactly what's going on today um, with these subversive groups uh, these Marxist groups, um, you know, and I think, I th honestly, I just think a lot of people don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't know what the long-term ramifications could be on the country. But if we don't, if we don't stop this infusion of, of socialism, if we don't, you know, and it, what scares me worse than anything is we actually have socialists and, and communists that's in our Congress. They're actual members of the House of Representatives that are in Congress. Um, you know, that scares the hell out of me. So, uh, you know, if this doesn't stop, you will not recognize this country in 20 years from now. It will not be the country it is today. Um, your children will not grow up in, in the freedoms with the freedoms that we have today. Um, your children will not be able to own businesses and property as we can today, in 20 years from now, this will be a very different country if this stuff doesn't stop. Yeah, I, I, I think we'd agree with you, Bernie. That's where, you know, we've talked about it from the beginning and, you know, a lot of what's going on right now seems like a big push towards socialism, whether it's your George Soros of the world behind it, who control the media and kind of push agendas and narratives. It, again, for me personally, that's what it all has kind of, smelled of is that move towards socialism, which is to your point, one step closer to communism, which is nobody wants. That's right. That's right. So Bernie, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so you, you mentioned uh, how in uh, New York city, um, Giuliani helped get everything going and reduce crime, reduce violent crime specifically. And I know that you uh, in your book, uh, jailer jail, talk a lot about Rikers Island and you running Rikers Island and the reduction in uh, dangerous, violent crime uh, in the prison. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how you, uh, how you did that and, and any lessons you learned there that could be applied to the world today? Well, I think the overall lesson, uh, you know, was no different from, from Rikers Island 
um, than it was the NYPD. In the New York City Police Department, we created the CompStat system that basically took real-time data with regard to crime statistics, looked at those, looked at the, looked at those that data on a daily basis, and we were able to use that data to put our cops, put our enforcement efforts out into the locations um, where they were most needed. In other words, you take these big maps, right? You take a map and you pin map the violent crime on that map, the seven primary crime ind indicators that the FBI uses, murder, shootings, robberies, burglaries, grand larcenies, auto theft. You map out and you pin map that crime. And then you dispatch the cops wherever that crime is, you know, and, and this is one of the things that bugs me about today. You know, you have people out there promoting this narrative that police go out and target blacks in communities. The reality is the police department doesn't go out and target anybody by color. Police department goes out and they target crime. They have heat maps. On those heat maps, it shows where the crime is. And if there's extremely violent crime and murder in certain areas and shootings and guns and things like that, that's where the cops are going. They don't give a damn what color their skin is and the people that's there, that's where they're going. And that's why the activity is so much in those areas. So we did that in the NYPD. At the same time, while that was starting in the NYPD, I was running Rikers. Rikers Island is 400 square acres. You have 10 facilities on the island. You had six facilities. I had six facilities in the five boroughs with 133,000 inmate admissions per year, um, 13,000 staff members, a billion dollar budget. And when I took over in 1995 as the first deputy, we averaged about 150 stabbings and slashings per month. Wow. Um, on the month that I was appointed police commissioner, five and a half years later, we had dropped that number, uh, dropped those numbers by 93%. Wow. Basically doing the same exact thing. Real-time data and putting, putting the enforcement in areas where the violence was, reducing the amount of weapons inside, getting intelligence so we knew what was going on in the inside. A lot of the same stuff we were doing in the NYPD, we were doing at Rikers. And, and at the end of the day, as Giuliani has said, he says constantly, publicly, we actually did a much better job at Rikers than any other city agency did um, in the reductions that we had, whether it was reducing overall inmate on inmate violence, reducing the number of altercations between staff and inmates, um, increasing the weapons found, things like that. But but here's the bottom line, Aaron, and, and this is this is for the business world in general. It's all about leadership, management, and accountability. Um, yeah, that's that photo right there. That's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good picture of Rikers. There's ten facilities there on the island, um, enormous facilities. One one AMKC has twenty five hundred beds. Uh, another one has twenty three hundred. Two thousand female beds. Um, it's an enormous facility. A lot of responsibility. Um, but when I left in two thousand to become New York City's police commissioner, it was without a doubt the most efficiently um, run correctional institution in the United States. Oh, 
it's definitely it's a it's a, obviously a tremendous facility like you said a big responsibility um that uh that facility now uh what's it like now is it is it just as safe or do they forget the lessons that you brought to the facility no uh the blasio took over and just like new york city he destroyed it um they have less than half the inmates i had and they had and they have twice the violence i had um they have uh you know basically created this environment where nobody's nobody goes to jail anymore unless you're in for murder um or something close to it you get you get locked up for a burglary or for an attempted rape or some other crime equ equating to that um you get locked up go into court the judge is mandated mandated to let you go and then you go back in the street so it could be for a violent felony and the next day the cops see you right back outside so uh and, and that's kind of what we're living with right now that's that's a part of the problem whether it's in new york city whether it's in chicago whether it's in baltimore you know people are complaining about crime violent crime and murder all over the world all, and all over the country i mean the bottom line is Every one of these cities that's run by a Democrat, every single one of them, Chicago, Baltimore, New York, uh, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, every one of the top violent crime and murder cities are run by Democrats. And, and the shame of it is, you know, everybody's focused on this, you know, this narrative of racial injustice and police brutality in these cities, uh, especially like Chicago. Um, there are young black men and women being slaughtered, slaughtered on a weekly basis. And um, this has been going on for years, for years. Nobody's, nobody's, there's no outrage. Nobody's marching downtown Chicago. You know, they're trying to push this narrative that the cops are bad for communities. What about the, what about the crime in those communities? What about the morgues where you have bodies stacked up on top of each other? What about the three-year-old kid, James Mackay, that was killed in Chicago just the other day, shot in the head while he's sitting in a barber shop with his father? What about him? What about those kind of things that happen on a daily basis? And nobody says a damn thing about it. That's what irks me. You know, these things can be fixed. You know, people, you know, I listen to these mayors and I listen to these governors talking all this garbage, you know, what should have, would have, could have been done. Guess what? I did it. I did it. I'm one of the only people in this country that really had that type of circumstance and was able to fix it. And I did it twice. I did it in the NYPD and I did it at Rikers. So don't tell me it can't be done. It can be done. It's not easy. It's not easy. And people have to realize, you know, there are consequences to breaking the law. These mayors have to tell their communities, you can't attack police. You can't assault them. You can't hit them with your car. You can't resist arrest. You can't interfere with somebody else's arrest. You can't do that. That's illegal. And if you do that, police are going to use force to arrest you. Um, and the politicians today, they're just afraid to say it. So, Bernie, you know, obviously, um, we, we have an issue with the, uh, with the police department. Now, 
or that's what the, that's what uh, ostensibly that's the issue, right? So right. people are saying the the way to fix the police police uh, brutality or overuse of force is to defund the police. Now I obviously have no experience like you do anywhere remotely close to what you do. I have zero experience basically. Although I know a lot of police officers myself, and we have many that go to Eric and I's gym, and we know many personally, and we have a large community of police officers and military that buy our products. But to me, you would think that if this is the issue, you would want to increase funding because you'd want to increase training. And then also, if you if you paid a police officer 70 grand a year, then you're going to get a lot more people that want to be a police officer. So you'd be able to choose, pick and choose even, even more uh, closely than they do now, along with better training. But the common thing, right? I don't want to say wisdom, but the common thought is we should pay them less and use that money elsewhere. What do you think yeah. about? So here's here's the thing, you know, I'm sitting there watching you and Eric, and you're saying this, you're talking, you, you, you know, the things you're outlining, that's from a business perspective, right? It's from a common sense perspective. Um, basically, that's reality. That's reality. Um, if you diminish or you defund the police department in any way, you reduce the manpower that's there. That's what you do. Okay, Chicago, they don't have the manpower to do the job they're supposed to do in the first place. Neither does Baltimore. Neither does Minneapolis. Neither does Milwaukee. And I can go through about the top 25 most violent, murder-ridden cities in this country. They don't have the manpower to do the job they're supposed to do. And you know that because they're in the top 25 most violent cities in the country. So at the end of the day, you have morons out there calling for to fund the police. Really? To fund the police? Well, I just came back from Atlanta. And in Atlanta, you have a number of cops that are calling in sick because you have a mayor and a city council and a district attorney that instead of targeting the thugs in the community, they're targeting the cops. And the cops... You know, if you're going to target me for doing my job, I'm not going out in the street. I'm not responding to a hot job. I'm not going to the job where shots are fired. I'm not going to put my life at risk or my family's life in jeopardy and my family's future in jeopardy and take away my kid's college fund um, for somebody in the street that doesn't care. We're a mayor that's going to throw me under the bus. The bottom line is you reduce the the funds going into the police department to reduce the manpower. When you do, you're going to see violent crime surge. And if you don't believe me, they just did it in New York City. They cut back, the Blasio cut back 600 anti-crime cops. Anti-crime is a plainclothes unit in the New York City Police Department. Every precinct has it. If you're in plainclothes, I was in plainclothes in Midtown. I drove around in a yellow cab. If you see the yellow cabs in New York City, well, there would be three of us in a cab, one driver, two people in the back, and they're cops. And your sole function in life is to look for guns, respond to robberies in progress, and other hot jobs in progress, shootings, burglaries, whatever. They took 600 off the streets of New York City. In the last month, murder and violent crime is up over 300% over last year. 300%. And it's only going to get worse. So these, these politicians can talk all that garbage they want, and they can try to snow the, the general public. Um, but at the end of the day, 
they are going to cost human lives that are going to be killed, murdered, maimed, and, and so forth if they continue doing what they're doing. So one example, I mean, we, like I mentioned, we do have a lot of police in, our, in the gym, and uh, one of them came up to me um, kind of, I guess it was about a week ago, a little less, and said, uh, one that we know really well, uh, and said, uh, yeah, man, I'm scared. I'm scared to re respond now. I don't know how to handle it. You know, I get calls, and, you know, if I were to go to a call where there's violence and, uh, you know, I don't know what I would do now. You know, depending on the color of the guy, I may not respond. I may just sit in the car. I may call, pretend I'm not there. I don't know because I don't know what's the right thing to do. I'm scared to do my job now. And and uh, and this is a really good guy. And uh, he's. It was like, well, well, shit. If that's this guy, I wonder how many other people feel that same way. It's got to be quite a few. Well, I, I have to tell you, coming back from Atlanta, I met with hundreds of cops in Atlanta, and I can tell you, all the ones I met with said the same thing. Here, here's the bottom line, Aaron. And Saturday, um, there'll be a very good example of this, right? You're going to have people from the special operations community, from the military. You're going to have cops at this thing on Saturday. Um, these are men and, and, uh, and women, uh, perhaps, that go out, that have been in the military, that have put their lives on the line, um, put themselves in harm's way for people they don't know. Um, they don't care what religion they are, what color they are. Uh, they've gone out and they, they've done a job basically uh, that a lot of people just wouldn't have the balls to do. They wouldn't do it. Um, at the end of the day, they need leadership. They need people that are going to be in command. They're going to, they're going to, one, they're going to support them. They're going to make sure they have the manpower they need, the resources they need to do the job. They're going to make sure under normal circumstances, as I would or Giuliani would, um, they're going to make sure that they get the benefit of the doubt when there's a problem. Unless, unless you can prove to me, outright prove to me up front that there was a crime committed by a cop, that cop is going to get the benefit of the doubt where there's going to be due process and an investigation, just like anybody else, any other civilian in any capacity. There has to be due process. But you know what? Mayors and governors today, they've lost the courage to do the job they're supposed to do, and they don't give the cops that due process. They give them no benefit. Um, and if I'm a cop, you know, I'm looking at this thinking, I don't want somebody else living in my house because I'm going to get sued. The city's not going to support me, and, uh, you know, somebody else is going to take my house. I'm going to wind up in jail for doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the first place. You know, it's a bad, bad time to be a cop. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, Bernie. So before we let you go, I wanted to get, have you give an update on the Michael Flynn case. Some major events occurred. This is, you know, we're moving a little bit away from the, the police and COVID and all the other craziness to a whole kind of different craziness. And uh, I know you're very close to Mike Flynn and, and have been involved in, in basically keeping up to date on the whole case. But for, for people out there that may not have kept up with the whole case, do you think you give me a 10 minute version of a, uh, or a 10 minute or less version of what happened and, and what, what is the, uh, the events that just occurred recently? Well, the, I, I actually spoke to him today uh, and yesterday, uh, yesterday right after we got the word from the, the uh, appellate court in, in DC, the circuit, um, where the Department of Justice had gone to the judge in his case and recommended uh, a dismissal of his charges. 
of his conviction. And the judge, for some weird reason, a very political reason, um, basically said, no, uh, you know, I'm not going to dismiss it. You have to prove to me certain elements of the case, um, you know, and I want, uh, we have to have this hearing and we have to discuss and we have to do. At the end of the day, it, it basically violates the Constitution. If the Department of Justice says that he was wrongfully prosecuted and, you know, he shouldn't have been prosecuted and those charges should be dismissed, then it's not the judge's job to basically investigate. It's the judge, judge's job, um, you know, to do, to do what's supposed to be done. And he was supposed to dismiss the case. He didn't do that. It went to the appellate court, the Second Circuit, and uh, the Second Circuit came back yesterday and basically told the job, you've got to dismiss the case. And so, Bernie, uh, before we get any further, Mike Flynn, give us a, a little background on him. Who, who is Mike he? Flynn was, uh, was the National Security Advisor for the President of the United States. He's somebody that spent 30 years in the United States military, um, extremely highly uh, decorated uh, three-star general, became the National Security Advisor. And during the initial days, the first few days, of the president's administration had a conversation with the Russian ambassador and that uh, conversation was intercepted by our security, our, uh, our security apparatus, our intel apparatus. And um, throughout this whole Russian collusion thing against President Trump, um, the Democratic Party and the Mueller uh, investigators, the special counsel investigators, they targeted Flynn uh, targeted General Flynn, basically saying what he did was wrong. Um, we now know that, one, they knew it wasn't wrong when it started, and we know that because we now have their notes. We have their emails. We have overwhelming evidence that basically demonstrates that they knew up front that there was no crime committed. Um, they conducted this investigation for some year, 18 months, and then threatened to lock up his son if he didn't plead guilty. And uh, eventually he pled guilty, um, came up with a new lawyer, Sidney Powell, who's probably one of the best appellate lawyers in the country. She started going through the case and basically brought forth all this evidence that the government had concealed, had suppressed. And through the course of that, they were able to prove that the government lied. They suppressed evidence, uh, they suborned perjury, and um, and that was the reason for the motion to go into the court to ask for a dismissal. And in the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice came in, the Attorney General, Attorney General Barr came in and said, it's got to get dismissed. There was wrongdoing in the investigation, should have never happened. And at the end of the day, um, they went before the court, both Flynn and his attorney and the Department of Justice went before the court calling for the dismissal and for some reason, the judge decides he's not doing. It. Well, that's you know he doesn't have that uh, he doesn't have that option. And the appellate court told him that uh, just yesterday. So General Flynn, uh, you know this thing will it'll last out now for another I think twenty one days or something. But eventually, uh, Judge Sullivan, uh, the overseeing judge, is going to have to dismiss the charges, and uh, General Flynn can move on with his life. Bernie, aren't these uh, federal prosecutors, aren't they after justice? Why go after a guy that they know didn't do it? 
Yeah, you know what happens, um, you know, it, it, historically, um, you know, you think, uh, people think, um, I thought, you know, and I'm a perfect example. You know, I would, 15 years ago, I would have been one of these guys, if you go to a wedding or you go to a party and, you know, you're, you're sitting around with other couples, you're sitting at a table of 10, 12 people, and somebody brings up the government and they start talking about conspiracies. They start talking about how bad the government is. I would have been one of the guys who stood up and said, no, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. They're the good guys. They're the guys in white hats. They're the guys that do God's work. Um, I believe that. I believed it then, and I still believe it. Um, but in the last two decades, 20 years, we've seen an increase where people in the Department of Justice, um, basically, uh, they ignore the law. Um, they break the law to enforce it. They suppress evidence. They suborn perjury. They extort false testimony. They do things that under any other circumstance, if you were a cop, if you were a cop or an agent or a state trooper and you stood up on the stand and you lied to the court in an investigation, you'd get locked up. They'll lock you up. They'll put you in prison. And at the end of the day, you have United States attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys and FBI agents that have lied, that have and, and got caught and then admitted it. Um, and nothing seems to happen to them. Less than 2% of the federal prosecutors that get caught engaged in prosecutorial misconduct, um, less than 2% are really held accountable in any way, um, which is absurd because under any other circumstance, you'd get locked up for doing exactly what they did. So this is something that has increased over the last many years. Um, I think it's something that the attorney general is trying to deal with now. Um, and, and, you know, as bad as I feel about the investigation against President Trump, this Russian collusion thing, the only benefit that I see that came out of that was that the American public now gets to understand and now know that they're not always the good guys. They're not always the guys with the white hats. Um, there's a lot of bad guys there. And, uh, you know, they should be held accountable when they do this stuff because they're putting people in prison that shouldn't go to prison. They're forcing people into plea agreements um, that they shouldn't be forced into. And they wear you down financially to the point um, that you have to give up. And I've been through this, so I know. You know, in, in my book, there's a, there's a statement in there that I, I, I talk about all the time. You don't have the constitutional rights you think you have unless you have the money to pay for them. And even sometimes, sometimes even when you do, it's not enough. It's not enough. So, you know, this is the way the system has, you know, worked out. Uh, and, and hopefully it's going to change under General, uh, General Barr's leadership. Uh, I hope. I hope. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely disturbing, Bernie. And it's something that I think that very, very few people realize is a reality. Yeah, like you say, you know, yeah, I hate to say it, but I agree with you 100% that yeah, your constitutional rights are only, like you said, if you can afford them. Because, you know, that's the thing is, you know, you're, a lot of the way the Constitution is written is 
such as so you can kind of defend yourself against the government, even you know, the tyranny of the government. And you know, a lot of that's not possible for most people. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what, Eric? Here's here's the way I try I try to explain this to people. When you look at a federal indictment, if you look at that document, it says the United States of America versus one line versus and it has your name. Now I want you to think of that for a second. The United States of America. That's no joke. That's the entire country. That's the entire Justice Department. It's the entire FBI. It's the entire State Department. It's the entire FDA. It's the entire, it's the entire everything, anything they want to bring in to prosecute you, anything, they can do it. So think of the amount of resources and money and, and manpower against you, one person. Yeah. Yeah, they have they it's have important. taxpayer money to to fight you. Right. So. And, and and they and it doesn't cost them a dime. Nope. Doesn't cost them a dime. They get paid no matter what. And in the meantime, you're paying hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on top of each other, and it just goes out the window in legal fees, in expenses, loss of income, things like that. It's not uh the system is not what it was supposed to be. And uh, I honestly, I, I don't know if it's ever going to get fixed. Um, but it, it has a better chance today of getting fixed than it did three years ago. Because three years ago, nobody knew this stuff existed. Yeah. Nobody knew they could do this. Only since this, president, since this investigation of the president did people get to see that there are people in the Justice Department that are dirty as sin. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's it's eye opening and certainly seeing your name on the paper versus the United States of government when you're a patriotic American who loves the country. It's a disconcerting thing to see because you feel like you're supposed to be on the same side. Right. Well, listen, you know, Mike Flynn and General Flynn and I talk about this all the time. You know, there's plenty of people out there that have been targeted by the government. But, you know, when I went through it, when he went through it. You know, there's this one thing we have in common, like, are you kidding me? Like, really? You know, I've nearly died for this country more times than I can count. Um, and in him, 30 years, uh, one of the most highly respected, decorated military generals in our country's history. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna charge him with making a false statement, um, or whatever whatever the thing was in the end, whatever they, they forced him into the plea for. You know, that's what you're going to put him in. You want to send a man, you want to send him to prison? Really? I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's wrong. Bernie, I want to thank you for being on the show. We loved having you. And uh, I'm, I have a lot of other stuff that I'd love to talk to you about. I know we have plenty. We'll do of it Saturday. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Yes, that's right. But I'd like to have you back on the show too, because I do think there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that our listeners and viewers, we do this on the podcast as long as well as the, the live show, but I think there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. I'd love to go over the uh, the 9-11, your, your experience in 9-11 and some of the stuff afterwards, working for the King of Jordan and all kinds of other interesting things along the way. Obviously your time that you had to spend in a federal camp, which is crazy. And then uh, your, your time working with George, you have a lot of stuff in your story that's worth talking about. And I don't want to- Way too many lives. <laughs> 
way too many lives. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you got you got a lot of, a lot of stuff to talk about. So, uh, for everybody out there, uh, Bernie, where can they find you, and what would you like them to go check out? I know I love Jailer for Jailed, Jailer yeah, to Jailed. I'm all, over, I'm all over social media. That you know, I'm I'm connected to your social media, um, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Um, look me up, uh, send me a message. I'll get back to you eventually. I'll get back to you. <laughs> I'm pretty responsive, but. Uh, yeah, and uh, guys, Eric, uh, Aaron, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thank of you. Course. Thank you for the pleasure. Time. Pleasure to have you here, Bernie. And I'm looking forward to uh, meeting your son and seeing you uh, very soon, a few days. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. So we'll be right back with a commercial break. We'll be back with John Devine and also Nola for the very first time, introducing Nola the dog, uh, my new dog, to uh, you guys out there. Be right back. Like one great big gym just waiting to get bumped. Two of us in front of the market with nonsense. And I'm going to flood it with premium product. Call Taylor Cito. Tell him we're doing a bogo. And change that shirt. You look like a purple di Barney dinosaur or something. Already. What's up, boss? What's going on? Where's the big one? He's getting ready. Ready for what? Second lunch? Idea. Third lunch? Get all my food. I'm ready. Why are you dressed like that? What are you wearing? You told me you're just intimidating. They're like all blue and fluffy. Yeah, what's more intimidating than a monster that's blue that eats your cookies? I like the way you think. You're that? Be like this guy. Look at him. Just like a monster. This guy. Eyes on his head, you can see everything, see all around me. He he makes me feel protected. You two don't, especially you. You're like pee long stockings on steroids. You get it. I don't want to talk to nobody. Hello? It's for you. What's it? Tuba. Tuba? Silky Tuba? Hey, what you want, man? You don't train as hard as me. <laughs> Cockroach, I train way harder than you. You never train like me. You want to go to war? I'll show you total war. I just want to throw a walk. <laughs> I'm beat. What? You're supposed to drink it. It's delicious. It hits harder. It's phenomenal. You couldn't tell me that this whole time. Thing one and thing two are supposed to tell you that. Pee Pee doesn't talk and the other one's French. I don't understand that shit. Well, that's why I'm here. So now you know. I got you. You're going to tell me that this whole time I got a bit of enemy up to here, man. I can't see it on my right eye. I got two extra eyes for you. Fucking guy.
My name is Ben Galloway. And I'm Matt Saraceno. We are the Tier Operator Management Team, and we invite you to join the Redcon One family. I joined the Tier Operator Program because I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. Being a Tier Operator is phenomenal. You want to keep tearing up. You want to work for, yes, the best company in the fitness industry. Redcon One helped me reach my goal, which at the time I didn't even know was a goal. The products work. Like that's, I mean, that's what it is. And I want to help other people reach their fitness goals using these products. I love that it's like a big family. I really enjoy that we can get together at events like this. And it's like, even though we're thousands of miles apart, it's just like, we all know each other like we're neighbors. We're not just out here trying to make sales. We're out here trying to change lives. Apply to be a tier operator today. All right, so we are back uh, with Darielle Singerman, John Devine, and if Johnny can show Nola over here. Oh, no, he needs a minute to show Nola. We're, we, got, we have one camera operator and two cameras, so it, it takes a little time. But um, this is an exciting time for us, uh, not just because John's here, but because Nola has been in the works you know, for, for nine months, nine months. Yeah. It took nine months to cook a baby <laughs> up. And, and Bob Routes, this is Nola, our, uh, our new daughter right there. Hey, Nola, how you doing? Good? 
Does she talk? She says no. She, she probably can, but you don't want her to start barking. So. Yeah. I turn around and she yeah, might get it. she might get other ideas. <laughs> so Nola, Nola, uh, give us the genesis of Nola. Right? Okay. So Nola was one of our personal protection dogs that went through our personal protection dog program. Mm -hmm. So it's not an instant process. Every candidate that we get in has to go through all the training and you know go through all the uh, all the different steps. So she was originally born in Poland. And then she oh. was imported to the UK, which then I got from a vendor there in the UK to ship her into California. So I was looking at a bunch of candidates and, you know, one of the most important things is assessing what is really going on in a family to see what kind of dog they really need. Right. And it took a while. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, also, you know. Also finding, you, you said finding the right candidate, a right girl dog that mm -hmm. is right. Most times when you have a really great female people want to breed it so yep. to get a really good female that also people are willing to part with is not easy exactly and inevitably even the dogs that i even import of them about 30 to 40 percent of them sometimes wash out of my personal protection dog program anyway mm -hmm. you know so uh making that selection is, is really really important to make sure you're getting the right candidates to go into the training uh but then through the course of the training she did really well she just shined i mean she was a shining example of what a good social dog that's great with people, great with other dogs, great environmentally. And then when it's time to to go to work, she's she's pretty good at that too. And, and right now she's in an extremely foreign, I mean, this is not, we got lights, cameras, a bunch of people, and she is. This know, is her welcome to Florida. Yeah. So she's Florida, like, yeah. So it's such an unusual, unfamiliar environment. She's still able to stay calm, be, you know, be a, be as she's supposed to be. Right? Well, yeah. I liked your description. You um, said alpha female, alpha female with a motherly instinct. Yes. And that's, I just felt like that. That's really you. Yeah. That's you. <laughs> yeah. That's you. Yeah. yeah. For sure. I love that. So when you look at a dog, when you when you look at a new candidate, uh, give us the process. Other than, of course, looking at the family that that the dog is going to. What do you look at, or what do you look for, or look for to not having a dog? Got it. So what I do is I go to ho usually Holland or Germany, sometimes UK, and I'm looking at vendors that are importing dogs from all over the world, you know, and so I'm, I'm going to like the hub. And when I get there, I'm kind of having like an NFL combine, so to speak. <laughs> I'm putting them all through the paces and I, I start as soon as I see them, really. I'm going up to these kennels and I'm seeing how they react and how they approach me and things like that. And I'll start marking which dogs I want to look at. And sure, I give the, uh, you know, the vendors and stuff a heads up of what I'm looking for. So they might have some in mind for me, <laughs> but really it, it's really up to you to really decide what you're going to be taking back. So I'll go picking the dogs that I want to actually test. And so while I'm there, by trips, I might test anywhere between like 50 and 100 dogs, you know, while I'm there. And I'll wow. only be come back with maybe maybe four or five at a time. So when you test them, is there any, is it, is it physical tests? Is it medical stuff? Or what, what, what does that encompass? So yes, physical, uh, mental, and uh, most of all, stability. So for me, it depends on what job I'm looking for. So for a personal protection dog, the first thing I look for is environmentals and stability. Because if the dog's not... It not environmentally stable and not good with people and not social, well, then you're getting yourself into a liability, not a capability. Right. You know, so right, right then and there, if they don't pass the sociability test, the environmentals, then I don't even need to bother seeing how good their bite is and how tough they are and, and things like that. Uh, some dogs that can become maybe a police canine, you know, mm -hmm. or a military canine, they don't have to be as social as a family dog. They just have to be social enough. Right. You know, so some of these dogs have plenty of good careers doing that kind of stuff. But in order to be going into a family with kids and other animals and, you know, strangers coming over, they have to be solid and super clear headed. 
Makes sense. What about uh, the medical portion? Do you ever look and see if like the dog uh, could potentially not be okay medically? Because the only reason I ask is because I've heard about dogs and, mm -hmm. that friends have got where they think they have a great dog and it's a beautiful dog, but they may have hip problems or yeah. other issues like that. So that's really why I get a lot of my shepherds from overseas and especially even like the Eastern black countries really, because it's mm -hmm. really hard to find German shepherds with the, that good, uh, you know, physical, uh, you know, traits that, that don't carry that hip dysplasia and bad knees and bad spine. Uh, but with Nola, she even comes with a little, uh, you'll see she has a little photo album of all her x-rays. <laughs> so before I get a dog, I make sure they're x-rayed, they get OFA checked, meaning that, you know, a orthopedic surgeon veterinarian looks at these x-rays and they determine like, how good her hips are, how good her spine is, her elbows are, things like that, because there's nothing, I mean, it's, it's sad, but you know, you just, you don't want to be getting into a dog and putting a, like a year's worth of training sometimes oh, no, yeah. and then just have them fall apart on you, you know? So, so what's just, around, what's the age that you usually, like, is there so, a time? So, yep. so typically that the prime age for selecting a, a dog is between like one and three, because mm -hmm. that's like a good, like adolescent dog, mm -hmm. you know, because if you went and looked like a puppy, that's like going to an elementary school and saying, who's going to be a, who's going to be an NFL player? Who's right. going to be a Navy SEAL? You know, mm -hmm. and it's kind of hard to determine it, you know, at yeah, eight years yeah. old. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. You know, but once they start getting like closer to high school level, well, now they're like kind of more developed. You kind of really like know the who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not necessarily looking at their training level. I'm just looking at who they are, you know, as a dog. And so the training doesn't really matter because we we put that into them. But they got to be, they got to have stability and they have to have the will. They have to have the will to, to work. So funny because you know obviously you were a Navy SEAL and so the the training that you guys go through it's like an interesting you're I don't know if you're intentionally making comparisons but it's like you know you can't you can't help but follow the the, the same kind of training path where you're they wash out or they don't they have to have the right mentality not just yeah. the right physicality the right level of aggression but not too crazy right mm -hmm. but you need to not quit you need to be, you know so it's interesting do you obviously you were a seal and that's how you got going do you connect a lot of your training that you had do you think of that when you're working with dogs absolutely i mean matter of fact when, when i was a seal canine handler overseas i thought i like invented personal protection dogs you know i was like <laughs> overseas i was in afghanistan and i'm just sitting there with my dog and guys are always coming to my room and hanging with my dog because it's like you know he's he's also partially the morale dog you know sure. comes in and hangs out and i'm like wow wouldn't that be so cool if like a family could have like the same kind of capabilities we have maybe not all the capabilities but some of them and then lo and behold when i you know eventually get back to the states and start you know looking into it there's a whole industry on personal protection dogs and people have been using personal protection dogs for forever you know since caveman days really but i just kind of thought of it because you know, my dog that I had, I was so lucky that he was so social. He was great with all the guys, just super social with all the guys and didn't have to worry about anything with, with that. And he was so stable in comparison to, to like a lot of other Malinois that we had. Yeah. So did was, you grow up? Did you grow up like so around I, or like how did you get into? I did grow up around dogs, but not like you probably would think. I grew up around grown retrievers. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, which was good because when I got to the dog teams, I realized how much I didn't know. You know, it's like, it's like working out for a little, like a little while thinking you've been working out for four or five years. And then you start training with someone who like knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. You're like, I feel like I've never worked out before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, cool. so for, for the uh, dogs on the team, so people out there who don't know about dogs and canines uh, being used, 
and SEAL teams and uh, really all the special forces, right? So Delta uses dogs also, right? Yep. And uh, so for a lot of the guys out there that are in special forces using a dog, it, people may not know how does that, how does a dog use? What do they do uh, on the front lines with a, uh, a canine? So overseas, you know, the, the threats really are IEDs mm -hmm. and bad dudes. So primarily their first, you know, thing that they're trained in is detection work and finding IEDs because, you know, we can't find them ourselves. So in other words, like you're, you're walking, right? Yeah. And there's an IED a hundred yards ahead. The dog mm -hmm. will actually pick up the, the sense that there's an IED. It's the yep. smell. So it can. So this is where the dog has all the physical ability, but we have the brain. So we have to work as a team because the dog won't smell anything if we're not downwind. So we have to be making sure that we're using the wind. We can even talk to like, you know, point man and whoever's leading the patrol and whatnot and be like, hey, we might want to, the wind direction here, we, we might want to come into target this way if we can, because mm -hmm. then my dog will actually be able to pick up an ID a little better, you know, if if you can. Because um, if not, if you're upwind, then you have to have your dog way ahead. So you're really, you're really involved in the planning of the op way mm -hmm. beforehand, because that, that is a huge deal. The dog's purpose can't be possibly served if you're yep. not in the right direction. Yep. I mean, I've done it before. We uh, Sometimes inevitably you have to go in one direction and, and the wind is just bad and it's fine, but then you have to have your dog a little further ahead of you, mm -hmm. you know, because they're not going to smell until they basically almost passed it. Uh, but the way most IEDs are designed, if they're a pressure plate, they're really designed to go off and a heavy dude steps on them. Mm -hmm. You'll have like little kids just walk on them. They'll, they'll walk right over them. They're fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but a dude who's like 250 pounds with his gear, body armor, water, magazines, equipment, right. if they're heavy, they step on the pressure plate, activate it like that. A dog with four legs, their weight is really evenly dispersed. So they can usually even just walk across an IED without it being detonated. The only time you have to really watch out is when it's remote detonated, when someone's like watching it and they're getting at it from a offset position. Mm -hmm. so, so will Nola do that for us with like Lego pieces? <laughs> so we didn't train her in that in that aspect, but we did train her a little bit. Like in the, I hate when I step on Lego. <laughs> and you're like, oh, what is that? Like, oh. Well, yeah. we did train her in, in the second aspect that canines overseas are trained in, which is the apprehension aspect of it. So you know there. We would use them on target where if we if there's any bad guys in a, in a building things like that we can send the dog in ahead of us that way they can find anybody who's hidden you know and also so when you're entering a room and let's just say worst case scenario there's like a bad dude set up he's got an ak point at, a, at, a, at an opening a channelized area or a, or a doorway you send a dog in there he's either like what the hell is that and then you're coming in right behind him you know so yeah. either he has a dog lashed onto his leg or his arm and then you come in the room or maybe he missed the dog completely and is still on, you know, waiting for you to come in, but then he's getting bit by a dog anyway. So, yeah. so that's interesting. So one thing I always think of is like, so obviously the, the dog is a, is a, you know, works for or with you guys, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also a dog and you love it, right? So is there ever been times where you let the dog go to get a bad guy and you're like, fuck, I hope this is okay for the dog. Yeah. Cause you're worried cause he's one of the, kind of one of the guys, right? Absolutely. Where you're like, cause he's going in and, and what you just described is he's you're breaching in the door. He's going in as kind of like the point man, right? Where he's in the most dangerous position and you know, he's extremely vulnerable. Absolutely. So we don't send the dog in unless really we made the decision that we're going in. Yeah. You know, he's one of the guys, but he is there to mitigate risk to, to all the guys that are there, you know? So, but on top of that, we're not trying to get him killed. Of course. You know, of course. He's, he's an asset just like we are. And we're not trying to put him in a position to get killed, but we have lost, 
you know, dogs overseas, they save, they're saving a lot of lives. Mm -hmm. They're just able to do what we can't. And, uh, you know, yeah. without them, we'd have countless more dudes not here. Yeah, they have obviously no reservations and no fear. Um, that's what they're trained to do, and they don't think yeah. about anything other than that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that that has to be a, a huge asset because obviously when you go through a door, even no matter how well you're trained, you have a certain amount of fear or reservations, right? You have to. You're like, well, is this guy waiting right there, ready mm -hmm. to pull the trigger, or is he have no idea and he's asleep, right? You don't know for sure. Yep. Um, whereas the dog doesn't carry either way. It's going 100%. Yep. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's gotta be a scary, a scary thing where for a dog handler who's trained the dog for years and has that attachment, it's like shit. Yeah. You know, you're got a lot on line. I mean, we spent about, I spent about a year with my dog before we deployed. Yeah. You know, took him from a puppy that didn't even know how to sit yet to being a fully mission capable seal canine. And you know, it, it was something that I had to come to terms with mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I love this dog. But at the same time, I might have to make a call that gets him killed. Yeah. You know, so uh, one thing I did do is I read a lot of after action reports from like other other handlers that have been overseas and done what they did. And the one thing you can't be afraid of is to send your dog when that time comes. Like right. if, it, if, it, if he's going to be able to be in a position to save a life, you have to be able to let go and, you know, just let the chips fall where they may. Um, just like us as, as operators do, you know, mm -hmm. we we prepare uh, most dudes you talk to, they probably won't talk much about being like afraid of the moment. Usually it's like afterwards, you're like, wow, that was, that was kind of hairy, you know, later on. Yeah. You yeah. go through it, but, but then you go through it, you debrief and figure out what you can do better and how you can make things better for the next time. Yeah. Yeah. So for, uh, for your business uh, with training these dogs, have you noticed a uptick during these crazy times? You know, a little bit, but... Because we started before yeah. any of this shit happened. We, yeah. We were still in the normal world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when when we started this process, because it was a while ago. But I always wonder because... So I have a friend, Austin Weiss, who's who makes ammunition. And, and he also made some of the signs here in the office. A uh, very talented artist. But his ammunition business is absolutely insane now. So, you know, while, you know, she's not ammunition, she is protection. And, and that seems like that's something that people are or thinking about much, much more now. Yep. So the one thing I want to implore to people is it's not a, you know, it's not like you go to a gun store and just purchase a dog off a shelf and then, you know, get it. These things that take a lot of time to, to train and, and to put into a family. So really like if you need one, it's almost too late. Yeah. You, you've already needed to have had it, you know, yeah. it's just like having firearm training. Yeah. If you need a gun today, well, you already need to have had it and trained with it in order to, for it to be an asset to you, right? You know, so if you just go out to a gun store, buy it, and have no training in it whatsoever, it's just a liability at that point. Yeah, you're right. You're so. right. And also, obviously, like the, the process of, of finding, we just talked about it, finding a dog, picking the right candidate, bringing them out often out of the country, right? And in training the dog, you know, kind of you have to spin the dog up to being all the way prepared. Mm -hmm. So obviously, it's not it's not just you know, it's not just a dog, it's your reputation, right? So this is your business. So it's Absolutely. like me putting together a pre-workout that I don't know if it works that great, but I might just get it out there so we could sell it, right? Yep. Well, That's it's also the emotional aspect of it. It's not just protection. It's, you know, the family and with the kids and, you know, mm -hmm. how are you going to, you know, he, she's part of the family. So yeah. it's not like going to buy, you know, a gun. So I think that taking that into consideration too, mm -hmm. um, how emotionally ready someone is to, you know, take that on. And right now is probably like a difficult, just emotional, like mentally for you to like anyone to make a decision like that. You know, I would think. Yeah. Right. Probably not the best time to get a pet. Yeah, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, Although there's so. been like the the shelters, you know, they say like all the dogs are gone. Oh but, really? That's good. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. That's good. Hopefully, it'll yeah. end up back at the shelters after everyone goes back to work. You know? <laughs> well, that yeah, I mean that's what I said. That's so, like, fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah, you really hope not, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, in terms of dogs, getting a dog like this, what can I uh, a canine? do for a family like ours what, what can the uses potential uses be so one is other than cuddling yeah i mean there's there's the cuddling aspect you know uh the one is i think that any family growing up with a dog it teaches everybody something especially kids teaches them responsibility when i was a kid i was i had to walk the dog feed the dog things like mm -hmm. that so it teaches you to care for something and you know work as a team in a family unit because everyone has to work together to now, to now care for this additional family member you know as capable as they are in a lot of things they still have to be taken care of, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, two, with the security aspect of it, you know, there's such a deterrent factor there that it's impossible to actually count up the amount of incidences that have been, that have never happened because right. people are casing and they're like, ooh, maybe not that place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably not gonna carjack that car, things like that. But uh, it looks like a much harder target with a, with a dog. Yes, you make so. yourself a much harder target. That's probably one of the first things that if you talk to anybody about home security, First thing to do to like help is get a dog. Now, does it have to be a fully trained personal protection dog? No, not really. It doesn't have to be. Matter of fact, I tell some people not to not to get one if if they don't have a good situation for one. Uh, but even having a dog that just barks, and I'm not saying uncontrollably just barks at everything. I'm saying is <laughs> yeah, we don't. Want that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you just have a dog that would bark if there's something going on outside, well, that's mm -hmm. an alarm system that can't be disabled. Right. You know, right. so if you have that, that at least alerts you to then go to your next level of defense, whether it be, you know, the baseball bat under the, the bed or hopefully something a little better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, but with a fully trained personal protection dog, there's also that last line of defense, which is full, being trained to take down a threat yes. and being trained to take down threats in many, many different scenarios and many different pictures. So what we do in her training is we give her all these different scenarios that could possibly be a thing. And the more scenarios that we throw at her and that she sees, the more she starts to generalize with certain things that she knows when it's acceptable to bite somebody and when it's not. But on top of that, the human is always the brain behind what's going on. So with that, we also train the dog to be have like an override. That way, if the dog decided that something looks like it's a target, like maybe somebody out there, you know, decided that bringing a baseball bat and screaming around and swinging it around was a good idea. And the <laughs> dog was like, oh, that looks like a bad guy. Maybe I should go nuke him. You could be like, say the magic word. She turns off. She's like, okay, I get this game. I'm, we're not biting that that guy today. Right. One of the things people worry about, and you know, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of people, and they go, well, what if she thinks one of the children is a threat? I was just going mm, to say, because our, boys, our right? kids love mm -hmm. to be they like to scream, at each other. Mm -hmm. and hit, hit, hit each other with baseball bats. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. Choke, choke each other out. Yeah, so. each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Grew up tough that way. <laughs> I was the older brother, so I think my little brother grew up tougher. because he gets the um, Our little guy, our little guy is, uh, is going to be... Yeah, stone cold. I may yeah. have some training questions for you, actually, for the kids. Oh, so awesome. while you're here, I may just. But the, the kid question is great because I get actually asked that a lot. So in bite work and in anything we, we do with protection work, a kid is never, ever an acceptable target. Mm -hmm. So it just never is. We take the, the dogs to playgrounds, things like that. So no matter what kind of you know chaos and you know high-level energy play, they're never allowed to look at a kid as a potential target. So my only caveat to that is if you're getting attacked by a bunch of eight-year-olds, you're on your own. <laughs> I think we're Sorry, we feel safe with that. Oh, what's so they do attack me? I mean, if there's enough of them, I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what what other questions we got for John or Nola? 
What time's her bedtime? Because I feel bad. You know, it's probably right now. now West Coast California. time. Yeah, pretty late right yeah, now. That's right. No, you know what? We're ahead. It's about you know, yeah, it's only six thirty. She's good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's earlier, not later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it feels like yeah. You think right? and she's yeah. happy? She just had a big bowl of food. She got some, some dog she's cookies good. here. She's good to go. That's awesome. Well, John, you know, we're really excited to have you here. Obviously, we got you here not just to, to help with the dog. You know, we got a we got a we got a quite a while of training with the dog. Yeah. Um, that's one of the cool things um, with getting Noel and working with John Divine is that you know you don't just get the dog and he gives the dog and you go okay I see ya. You know, there's a lot of training involved in this in-house training with the family, mm -hmm. which is just and a we're going to get that deal. video right. We're gonna oh, yeah. Johnny. Johnny's, as much as you Johnny's want. gonna be hanging out with us. Gonna be here the, the whole next time. few days. <laughs> Johnny Ray. We have five people in the video team. We're gonna all gonna be suit. here. Nice. Video, yeah. <laughs> video Nola. So we do need to get some. Definitely need to get some Nola yeah. video for sure. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. With the with the integration training yeah, and the fun. commands yeah, and fun. all that. Yeah, but he's also here. Also, it just so happens we coincide with the time of the Murph we talked about earlier uh, before Bernie was on the on the show. We talked about the fact that the Murph and we got. You know, it, with everything going on, uh, we don't know exactly the number. We had 70 team guys coming to. That's to amazing. To, to I can't, to I can't even so. wait to see how many dudes I got. <laughs> <laughs> Probably going to know tons yeah. and tons. So yeah. it's uh, it's going to be a really fun event and obviously a very important event. I'm hoping to raise a lot of money for the uh, Michael Murphy uh, Foundation, as well as Dad Dan. So uh, it's very, very cool that you're here for such an important time, not just for, for Red Con 1 and the gym, but also for uh, the Murph, you know, Murph Challenge. Really yeah. neat. As Could have came at a better time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was just like perfect, really. Yeah, wise. yeah, it really is. You know? Did you know any of those guys? Some of the guys from that uh, from Operation Red Wings. Or? So I didn't know them personally because that was really a little bit before my yeah, generation. I thought it was. It was. Yeah. It was like one generation before me. Right. Yeah. I figured. I figured as much. I'm sure you know guys that know guys. Oh, absolutely. Right yeah. And your yeah. community is such a small community yeah. of people. It's like everybody. You know, they talk seven degrees of Kevin Bacon for you guys. Like one degree, basically. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember doing that workout the very first year when it was posted on CrossFit. Back when CrossFit was just a website that you, yeah. know, that you just go to. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember doing the very first one, and I was like, "Man, that's a really serious workout." You know? Oof, yes, it is. And, I'm uh, not too. I'm the announcer, so I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> right? I don't know. You're training the dogs, so you don't have to worry about it either. A lot of guys. So a lot of guys. Oh yeah, so Nola's yeah. going to make her appearance. Yeah, there you go. Uh, she she can come with a workout. She can yeah, run. she can do it. She can definitely do it. She can run a mile in a mile. Yeah, I'm sure she could. So we. We a lot of the guys. It's funny. Uh, the team guys are like, "So I'm gonna come, but I, uh, my back's not right, or like I can't do. That. <laughs> like I, I, I sprain my my calf, or I can't do. I can't do the workout, but I'm gonna be there." There's a lot of guys, or a lot of guys are like, "I'm really not gonna be good. I'm gonna be embarrassed. So I'm not gonna." I'm just gonna watch. I don't think there's gonna be a timer there. No, and that's you know what, what I told. Mean? I told like, everybody, like, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. It's not a competition. Yeah. You know, people are like, I don't have a vest, so I just can't do it. You know, like, it doesn't matter. You don't need a vest. The first time I ever did, I don't think I had a vest either. No, I mean, and a lot of people won't because we, you know, yeah. vests are extremely hard to come by. We had to pull out strings to get pull up bars for all these people. Man. Yeah. Pull up bars, dumbbells, these are hey, things that are high, hot commodities. Now. I flew with my vest just in case. Wow. I, I flew with, okay, I cool. took up 25 pounds of my 50 pound allowance. <laughs> no underwear, but you That's got your vest. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that's very cool. And we'll call it uh, going commando for nothing. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, baby, got any more questions for John or Nola before we go? So just um, off the the running part, can she run on mm -hmm. the treadmill? Oh, she can run the treadmill. Absolutely, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. we need. We so, need so do we have to get a special doggy treadmill? So not really. So if you have a good treadmill that's long enough, mm -hmm. totally fine. She can use a human one. 
Uh, the, the, they have to be long. You know how some, some of those human ones are super short? You yeah. can barely get a stride. We have a lot, quite a variety. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We, got, we got some long ones. We got the, the self I'm really excited oh, about that. She's going to love that one. Yeah. Because I'm going to like put her on the treadmill next to me. Like when I'm, oh, yeah. Oh, heck, like, yeah. We have the self-propelled one. You have the assault yeah. one. We have uh, the, the running ones, the woodway ones. We have the, we have all of them. Yeah. 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 At the gym, there's quite a variety. Can she do elliptical? The arm trainer? I don't know. Stair, stair climber, probably. Stair, stair climber would be cool. Maybe a Versa climber, maybe. Yeah. yeah. We got a Versa climber. We have a Versa climber. I'd love to see her on the stair metal. That, yeah. that would be amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. Next to each other. Yeah. Yep. That would be, be fun. So, John, <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Uh, where can people find you if they want to check out the dogs and see about getting their own personal protection dog? If you want to come check out our dogs, it's www.divinecanines.com. And that's Letter K, number nine, and letter S. And then in your Instagram, too. Your Instagram. Instagram, so. same, Divine Canines. Yep. yep. And uh, you'll be seeing, if you, if you uh, don't have the attention span to go type it in right now, make sure to watch my and the Red Kind of One Instagram. You're going to see a lot of John Divine and a lot of NOLA uh, this coming week. So make sure to tune in. Thank you guys so much for watching. Uh, Eric Hart will be back. He's out there somewhere hanging out. Oh, there he is. I was going to say, yes, he's, uh, he, he stepped he stepped away for a moment to let Darielle okay. come in. But uh, we will be back next week, and uh, we have a bunch of great new guests and a lot of cool stuff coming up for the next few shows. Hopefully you enjoyed this one, and we'll be back next week. Johnny, we're out.